1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at AskNoahShow.com. My name is Noah Cholai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. So last week, CentOS Stream was announced. Now, we had this in the show notes for last week, but we got carried away with other topics and didn't have time to get to it. Now, if you're subscribed Or if you visit the show notes, podcast.asnoashow.com, then you saw this story. If not, you're about to hear about it now. So CentOS announced Stream, and Stream is a developer-forward distribution rolling release of RHEL. Now, in a lot of ways, this makes a lot of sense for Red Hat to go down this road. There are two kinds of people that implement server and or desktop workstation operating systems and those two categories are people like me who fall down in the lts long stability very slow development pace stability at all costs those kinds of people and then like ryan uh dos geek as fast and rolling as humanly possible the sooner you can get software the better CentOS Stream is a distribution that is designed to help community members and Red Hat partners and others take advantage of the innovation that occurs in open source through rolling release. Now, the problem that I see right off the edge is I question how this fits into the Red Hat brand. I'd be the first person to defend Red Hat in just about any decision they make. But I question if this is not too much diversification. And we see that from time to time. And we see the negative consequences that come with too much diversification. Anytime you have a project that tries to stretch itself too thin or tries to exist in too many facets, they topple over. And this seems so far away from Red Hat's bread and butter. The I can install it and I know, I know it's going to work. It may not be up to date. It may not be compatible with the latest things, but I know the things that are there are going to work well. That's kind of been the belief of Red Hat, has it not? In a lot of places that use RHEL, I have I have had in-depth conversations with people. I've had in-depth conversations with administrators of universities. I've had in-depth conversations with people. In large organizations, I've had in-depth conversations with people in small organizations. All of them choose Rel for the exact same reason, because they trust the brand, they trust the reputation, and they trust that they're not going to have any problems. New software, shiny things, gets us excited. Any technology enthusiast that suffers from lags gets latest and greatest syndrome, gets excited. With rolling releases, because we want to play with the new software and the new version of GIMP is out. We want to install it. We want to see what new buttons there are when the new version of Mumble comes out and they get rid of the ugly lips. We want to be able to take advantage of that. We want to be able to customize the color scheme. We want to enable the dark mode. And I've been there. I've done it. But what you have to understand is the people that are oftentimes writing the checks and writing the checks to companies like Red Hat, those are the kind of people that don't care how new and shiny the software is. They just want the thing to work. And it concerns me that even Canonical with Ubuntu, and, you know, they have a very interesting model in that they have the LTS. They have the rock-solid reliability if you want to only upgrade every five years. In addition to that, though, they also provide the in-between releases. And so it's not rolling per se but it certainly is much faster paced than the LTS and notice that they don't even have a true rolling distribution so it sounds a lot to me like there are people out there who want to run arch in production but they don't want to run arch in production and so this is like a middle ground approach in which CentOS is going to be used, it's not RHEL, it's not RHEL proper, and so they don't have to worry about that brand thing, and they're not even changing Red or CentOS itself. They're adding, in addition to, they're adding a choice. And they are trying to give developers what they're asking for. I look at it, I come at it from a, a slightly different standpoint. One of the things that I think is really great about the LTS, that's really great about... Products like RHEL that are stable and predictable is they give developers a set goalpost to aim for. And I think this is part of the discussion that is often left out, right? Every other time I've had a discussion about rolling versus static distros, somebody always tells me, well, you know, Noah, uh, when it comes to, to, to rolling distros, it makes perfect sense because in static distros, it's not like they test against every other piece of software anyway. So why not just give the latest? And that's true to a point, right? When FFmpeg comes out, it's true that they don't necessarily test with every application, the latest app, latest version of every application that is released that uses FFmpeg. That said, those other applications like OBS, like VLC, you better believe that they target a specific version of FFmpeg. And so when that specific version isn't there, then things break. So we have two choices. We can either choose that every project, every time they make a new release, based on the latest version of all the libraries and all of the other dependencies that they need, that's one way to go, and that model would work great if the only thing we were talking about is open source. If the only projects that are relying on these other projects are open source and have an active community and have people that are paying attention to what's happening in all of these other projects. That model makes perfect sense where that model starts to fall apart is when you run an IT company and you're someone like me that has simple help that he relies on to be able to administrate customer machines. And that version of simple help relies on a particular version of whatever and all of a sudden that breaks. Now all of a sudden Simple Help breaks. And sometimes it's Java and sometimes it's a whole myriad of things. But the point is, Simple Help isn't involved in developer cycles. Simple Help is not involved necessarily, and I'm not picking on them, but just it's a proprietary project that I rely on. They don't they're not necessarily invested in the open source ecosystem because it's not their business model, it's not their bread and butter, right? But they you better believe that they do target a specific version of Of Ubuntu. Lightworks, same story, right? I have run into more problems trying to run Lightworks on Arch or on Fedora or even on Red Hat than I have on Ubuntu LTS. Why? Because the people at EditShare designed Lightworks specifically to run on the LTS. And so when you stray from that, you've run into problems. And it's not their fault. They're just not going to augment their development cycle to, to accommodate a moving goalposts and don't kid yourself if you're moving to a rolling release that is exactly what you're doing you're moving the goalposts and so uh, you know I'm glad that Red Hat is making steps to try to appeal to a bigger audience I hope this gives them uh, some forward momentum in the cloud in the hybrid e- ecosystem which they're very interested in but. I would really, 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 really like to see Red Hat work on a desktop-focused long-term support distro. I would really like to see rel lts designed for desktop that i can purchase a subscription and i can contact red hat and say hey i can't rip my blu-rays with make mkv and for them to say oh well that's because you need this particular version or we have to do this particular thing right right now the subscription service or the support contract is really not designed for desktop use it's really primarily designed for server use and they kind of extend that not kind of they do extend that to include workstation use but when you start doing daily tasks if i wanted to get gourmet recipe manager Running on top of RHEL, and now it just works, but if it didn't, that's not going to be something that, you know, Red Hat is necessarily trained in supporting because that's not, that's not the core business model. That, to me, seems like a far more, I guess I'd go ahead and say useful thing um, to concentrate on, but be that as it may, it's a cool thing. I'm excited to watch what Red Hat does with this. I'm excited for it to make some progress, and we just lost all of our calls. That's interesting. Uh, we had like nine calls in the queue and our phone system just died and we lost them all. So I apologize to anybody that was waiting on hold. I don't know if uh, if Sarah, if you can hear me, if you can start calling some of those people back, maybe. That's super frustrating. We're about to get to calls. OK, well, this is live radio. So Stallman last week, another story that we uh, ended up not having time to cover visited Microsoft. And look, here's the thing. There is all sorts of conspiracy theories and all sorts of thoughts and ideas floating around the Internet as to why uh, Richard Stallman would visit Microsoft. And I don't buy into any of it, to be honest with you, because it's one of those things where if you have prominence and you have the ability to get an audience with a company that you think can make a difference, that's something that you absolutely should do. It's why I invite clients out to dinner and lunch. Anytime we are going to have a discussion about a project that they want to do or something that they want to uh, participate in or something they might like to hire us for, I always invite them out to dinner and lunch. Why? Because it's a disarming thing, right? It's much easier to sit down and chat over dinner than it is to exchange emails back and forth. So getting in there and getting FaceTime and putting a, a human face and a human personality to a name has value. And that's what Richard Stallman was doing. So he visited Microsoft and he gave them some advice. Now, as to why Microsoft invited him, I have no idea. I would guess it's primarily to hear them out. I highly doubt that Microsoft has any vested interest in, you know, ditching 30 some years of proprietary work in favor of the extreme open source FOSS philosophy, right? I'm not seeing that happen. But that said, I think it was... Very interesting that Microsoft is interested in hearing the view from the far extreme, really the far opposite extreme from where they are. And I thought that Richard Stallman did a very good job at giving some practical, realistic suggestions to Microsoft that they would do well to heat because it's nothing that will affect their bottom line, which is what they should be caring about. It's something that will instill trust from the community who wants to use Microsoft products, which would benefit their company greatly. And it's just an all around, they're just all around good ideas. They're just, it's all around going to improve efficiency and usability of Microsoft windows on various products. So some of the suggestions that he made help keep computers unlocked, no secure boot that restricts what systems can run. True secure boot means that you specify what system is allowed to run at your computer? And he's absolutely right. I have said since the day Secure Boot came out, since the day Secure Boot was announced and people started talking about it, I said Secure Boot is an answer to a problem that never existed. There is it, I've been working in IT for 20 years. I have never, ever once come across a, a situation in which somebody had a rogue operating system Loaded, you know, from their BIOS and it was and it booted into it secretly and, and did some bad thing, right? Like that, that scenario just doesn't happen. Maybe it happens in very large, high level corporate environments where corporate espionage is is more of a thing. But the vast majority of us that buy computers at Best Buy do not deal with rogue operating systems booting on our computers. Now we do deal with intentionally loading third-party operating systems which Microsoft may or may not have any interest in having us run on our computer that they would prefer you run Windows on. But I've never had anybody inadvertently install an operating system and then boot into it on a computer, either my own or any of the thousands of computers I've managed over the years. So I believe that Secure Boot is literally a solution in search of a problem. It wouldn't be so bad if it was an open standard. And so to Richard's point, true secure boot means you specify what system is allowed to run on your computer. So that's fine. If you want to go ahead and implement a system in which I can go into the BIOS, click on the secure boot tab and tell it, hey, I want to enroll a new operating system, that would be fine. The problem with secure boot from its inception, and this is getting better now, but the problem with secure boot at its inception was it was very, very difficult to enroll a new operating system and so essentially you ended up shutting the thing off now new in the chat room points out secure boot is more about establishing a route for your chain of trust through the implementation of the whole uefi it does uh what really helps with that goal so the idea is this right if you can say from the time that i push the power button everything that occurs has some sort of cryptographical handoff or has a, a, at least a handoff so that you know As the operating system goes to load, we trust the UEFI interface, hopefully, and as we transition that and hand off to the operating system, now there is something to ensure that we know what is going to follow the UEFI interface. That's a good thing. And again, I don't disagree in principle. I just, I've never seen that happen. I'm sure it's theoretically possible. I've just never seen it happen. I've never heard of it happening. I've never met anybody that has seen it happening, and I've asked. And if you've asked, I'd be interested in hearing. Live at AskNoahShow.com. Have you ever had a machine... That booted a rogue operating system without your permission. Uh, and I'd be particularly interested if it did any damage. Or you can call us at 855-450-DOA. would love to hear the story. But I'm just not seeing it. The second suggestion he gave is help make peripherals safe. No backdoors in their embedded software. This applies to keyboards, cameras, disks, memory sticks. Since they contain computers with pre-installed software that can be replaced through a universal backdoor crackers that do that, installing malware into them, which becomes an advanced persistent threat. So, this I assume is a reference back to. Well, it could be a reference to a couple of things, but we've seen this happen a couple of times before, right? Lenovo uh, famously shipped a laptop or a series of laptops for a while that had a software suite. And as any good Windows loving laptop owner does, the first thing you do when you get a new laptop with Windows preloaded is you wipe Windows off. And if you're putting Windows back on, you load just Windows and then you start putting just the drivers and you skip all the bloatware that shipped with the computer. Well, lo and behold, customers were unpleased to find that the software would just reinstall itself. And when people look closer, what they found was it was actually embedded into uh, one of the chips in the system board. And so that you couldn't actually remove this software. If you did, as soon as you install Windows, it would just reinstall all the software. Now, I can't remember specifically which models were affected by that, but I do remember at the time I was purchasing a ThinkPad and somebody said, oh, buddy, you better not. uh, This thing has this chip on it. I said, "Okay, well, does it work on Linux? No. Okay, great. Then I don't care. It's not going to reinstall anything. Well, what's it going to do? Install Wine and reinstall the bloatware? I mean, come on now. It's not going to be able to execute PL code. Doesn't matter to me. Right. So I didn't care. But if you use Linux, you probably didn't care. But if you had Windows, man, that's a heck of an assumption that I'm just going to put some software on your board that you may or may not like, and I will give you no way to get rid of it. Absolutely. That should not be tolerated. The other thing to consider, right? Many of these keyboards are and mice and other peripherals. Man, I see some mice in computer stores, in Best Buy, and cer you know, in various different places. Man, they look like a quasi keyboard. You know, it's got thirty nine buttons on the thing. It's just ridiculous. And I'm sure if you're a gamer and you fight one v one and you need the no scope, then I'm sure having thirty nine buttons on your mouse makes a lot of sense. For the rest of humanity, that's just you know, annoying. Um but what I found is it, the all these modern keyboards, especially Logitech now, is getting really advanced, right? That has different profiles on the keyboard, and the different profiles can equate to connecting to various different Bluetooth devices. Uh, or it can handle various different function keys. And they, I have one Logitech keyboard that has a, I don't know, almost like a volume knob on it, but it can be used for selecting different things and all sorts of things. And all of those programmatic features require some sort of system built into the keyboard itself so that it can manage that. Uh, My friend Michael Tunnell has a a number pad, essentially gaming number pad that he uses for switching scenes inside of OBS. And that thing has a little mini computer on it and you load some software and you talk to the computer and tell it what you want the keys to do. How often are those things getting updates? How often are those things being protected? And I think that a lot of those things are, you know, could potentially be, a very serious threat. I mean, this is the place where you're t- what good is your encryption password, even if it has Lux? What good is your encryption password that's properly stored and has all of the right characters and all of the right keys and all of the right things and you change it at the right frequency and you, you do all of the things to make sure that your password's secure? What good is it? If at the end of the day, somebody can just walk up and exploit the device that you use to input the password and, and suck it up. No good at all. It's t- totally useless. He encouraged them. He said uh, Microsoft should publicly take back the attacks on copyleft made in the 2000s. Ballmer called the GPL a cancer. Um, This is one of those things that I don't know I think is that big of a deal. I mean, yes, Microsoft probably said some things that weren't very nice. I'm sure we in the Linux community said some more things that weren't very nice. Is it really necessary to go back and publicly apologize for something you said in the 2000s? No. Does it change anything? No. Is it going to inspire any trust between open source enthusiasts that they came out and apologized? No. Is it a waste of time and just really lip service? Yes. So I'm not, I don't get bent out of shape by that one. Encourage copy left of application and library code, maybe even system and tool code. So the idea being, hey, could you open this stuff up? Could you try and get this stuff uh, you know, the, the going the other direction? And so there is collaboration and there is some security audits going on. And there are some people looking at this, uh, this code. He actually goes further to say direct GitHub to promote correct and clear use of license and the best use of copyleft GPL version three. In other words, hey, you should use GPL version three. You should go ahead and license some of your software this way. I think that would be really helpful help fight against copyright on interfaces. One of my biggest pet peeves, right? I don't care how universal your application is. I don't care how much it's used. I don't care how many people like it. The fact that a lot of these either APIs or the the uh, the, the the things that you have to talk to are oftentimes under the control of the parent company and that becomes hugely problematic. The Linux Ninja in the chat room says well, they're prohibited from using wireless keyboards or mice at work. And, of course, the reason for that is because if you think there are some security flaws in the Logitech keyboard I was talking about where it, you know, talks and has profiles and stuff like that, just imagine how many security vulnerabilities are in a wireless keyboard from 15 years ago that ha- where it was operating on its own little proprietary dongle thing and nobody once has ever actually looked into the security of those things. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? So those are the kind of things that, that Microsoft has the cloud, has the ability, has the um, influence to be able to, to, to get done. And so that would be really fantastic to see them working on that. Stallman suggested that they help the web be usable with javascript deactivated I, it, again the the day cannot come fast enough where we get rid of javascript and we get rid of flash i still come across websites that require flash the, despite the fact that it it is a deprecated product and has been a deprecated product for a long long time again microsoft has the ability to go against the google's of the world to go against whatever the next organization that wants to dominate the web and provide some pushback. And even if we don't agree with Microsoft, if we can get some competition rolling, we have a better chance of getting a better end solution. You know, at the at the end of all this. Publish the hardware interface of products such as uh, Holions, so we can run them without any non-free software. Even if our software is years behind, that will be better than not being able to use those devices at all. And again. I'm not entirely sure that I agree with that sentiment, right? Like I, there are some very important things to be done in the technology space, even more things to be done in the software space. A lot of things Microsoft can help with. Is this one of them? I don't know. I think that there are a lot bigger problems facing people who want to get away from proprietary software um, than than the use of physical devices. I'm just not seeing it. but. It's not a bad idea. And then, and I thought this was really interesting and good on him for including it. He said, I know that this is a stretch, but release the source code of Windows. Release the source code of Windows under the GPL. Now, at first you hear that and you're like, yeah, fat chance, right? However, consider this for a moment. Windows continues to be a dying product, right? XP is deader than a doorknob, and I still run into XP machines. Heck, we just put an ATM in a couple of weeks ago, and it had XP embedded in it, right? God only knows how much the bank paid uh, Microsoft to flesh that thing out with the proper security update so they could actually use it. But at the end of the day, there are still out there people that are beating that beating that drum, the XP drum. We are getting to the, and the end of this year. Seven Windows 7 is going to become EOL. And so anybody that is on 7 is going to have to transition to 10. 10, by the way, is a mess. Uh, The update situation still is not fixed, and so there are still people that have to use it for critical infrastructure that refuse to use Windows 10 because of the update situation. I can't even drag an icon from the start menu onto the desktop, right? If If you use the search function like every other operating system has to locate an application and you want to drag that shortcut onto the desktop, it just doesn't work. I'm sure there's a way to do it. I just don't care. But the point is... Microsoft is; they pulled their Windows team. They're they're spending very little, if any, time trying to flesh out the problems of Windows. And that what where that leaves us is in a place where Microsoft is pushing people towards Azure, Apple is pushing people towards iPads and iOS, and that leaves us in Linux land, saying, "Hey, we'll go ahead and take over the desktop." We've been trying to do that for twenty years. Nobody listened to us. If Microsoft tomorrow released the code for Windows imagine what we would be able to do. I mean, I guess on the downside, it puts uh, projects like React OS out of business overnight, right? Because now all of a sudden you have the real thing and it's available. And so their develop- their, their attempt to copy for the last 10 years kind of becomes moot. But other than that, it would be a massive benefit to us in the Linux world. Massive benefit to us in the open source world. Massive benefit to those of us who have didn't have to run Windows for one thing or the other. And it wouldn't violate our principles. So I thought that was an overall very good discussion from Stallman. I thought those were good recommendations. I liked what he told Microsoft. I liked the fact that Microsoft invited him and they were willing to listen to him. I'm not sure that that this is really going to bear any fruit. I don't know that anything is going to come out of this. And as Nunix points out in the chat room, that's like saying elementary would put Ubuntu out of business. I disagree. Um Elementary is based off of Ubuntu and uh, essentially attacks uh, or, or targets in each audience, right? You open source, it, let's just say for the sake of argument that they open sourced uh, everything. Windows from top to bottom, XP through 10, everything is is GPL. They just relicense it. And you could go onto GitHub and download the source code for Windows 10. How many people would use Microsoft proper? How many people do you really believe would still be using React OS? And how many people would either fork the official Windows 10 code or just use it as is and strip out some of the privacy stuff, right? So I don't think that analogy is, is entirely accurate, but, and the Linux Ninja points this out and he's absolutely right. He says, Microsoft really loves Linux. Why in Hades do they want to get, why, do, why in Hades do they want to put out their Edge browser for Linux, but not their Office Suite or Teams client? I'll tell you why. Because their office suite, they would like to roll into a cloud service. And on the cloud service, it works fine on any operating system. And they're perfectly happy with that because they want you to be in a subscription model. Microsoft is going to have a very difficult time in the next 15 years making money the way they have made money. Nobody, and I mean nobody, is buying licenses at 200 bucks a pop anymore, right? First of all, by the time... You get to the point where you want to upgrade a uh, Windows 7 machine to Windows 10. Chances are that machine is old enough that it probably makes some sense just to buy a new machine. At least that's what we're seeing in the field. People are not willing to invest money in upgrading their operating system. Now, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Yes, that was a thing. You absolutely purchased a computer with Windows 3. Well, You purchased it with nothing. You put Windows 3.1 on it. And then 95 came out and you upgraded. Then 98 came and you upgraded, right? These days... By the time the new version of Windows comes out, you're probably just upgrading that machine. And so and if you upgrade the machine, you're getting a Windows 10 license with it anyway, unless you're building your own. So the days of walking into the Office Depot or Office Max and spending $200 for the version of Windows and $300 for the professional version or $500 for the enterprise version or whatever it was, those days are long gone. Nobody's doing that anymore. They're just not. And Microsoft has to find a way to survive. And so what they're doing is they're transitioning to a licensing system and they're going to run things cloud based. So it's unlikely that they're ever going to support native office because I don't know that they necessarily want to support native office long term. I think what they really want to do is move uh, everybody into the cloud and into Azure and then charge people a subscription. And to that end, I think they're going to make a lot of money. Now, the thing with Stallman is, I, and there was some other stuff that uh, occurred last week. I'm not, uh, it's a family friendly show. I'm not going to get into it. It's there as links in the show notes. If you want to read what the discussion was about, suffice to say, I don't agree with most of his sociopolitical beliefs. That should not be a shocker to anybody that's listened to the show for any length of time. I continue to be very grateful to Richard Stallman for all of the hard work he has put in, because let's face it, the guy kind of i mean he takes some hard shots on the nose often and he's very good about responding to them and he's very good about addressing them and he's very good about going on uh, coming on shows and and going out and doing public speaking now is he the nicest most cordial person on the face of the planet probably not i think we'd all agree he's got some room to grow there but his ideology is willing to defend it Nobody sits down with Richard Stallman and tries to convince him of something else. You go to Richard Stallman because you want to learn what his view is. And if your goal is to have a productive conversation in which you have an exchange of ideas and you both walk out with something, uh, you're probably dreaming. And I think anybody that has followed Richard Stallman for any length of time knows that. 855-450-NOAA, that's 855-450-6624. I'm not going to wait for you to get a uh, screened because I don't know what killed all my calls last time, so I'm just going to put you straight on the air and uh, you and I are going to chat. Uh, welcome to... And it dropped. <laughs> this is quite the night we're having. Call me back. 855-450-NOAA, that's 855-450-6624. Uh, so I continue to be grateful for all the hard work that Richard Stallman put in. And the respect that he has from the community is really inspiring. When I go out onto the internet for all of the horrible, terrible things that he has said and all of the things that I don't agree with, it's incredible to me how many people really stand up for this guy. And they don't stand up for him, I don't think, because they believe that he is this shining compass of moral character. They stand up for him because he has a belief system that is well thought out, well laid out, well explained, and that anybody that works in the technology field looks at and can say, man, that would sure solve a lot of problems, right? If we all did things Richard Stallman's way, would it be perfect? No. But would I be out $50,000 for a software license that I paid for and then the company went under? Yeah, that probably wouldn't have happened, right? And anybody that's worked in this field for any length of time know, has has a story like that. I certainly do. It was a heck of a lot more than 50000 too. It just wasn't my money. One of the... uh. Cool things that have transpired over the course of 2019 and and the and a few years uh, before is the proliferation of power PC machines. They they you know they 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 took a dip for a while uh, when Apple decided to go to an x86 processor, but recently I've been seeing more and more of them. And every time I go to a conference or every time I go to an event, it seems like there is some other manufacturer, some other software vendor that is working towards making the perfect uh, power PC. Machine And so we have had we've invited some people on the show to talk about the development cycle of some of the workstations. Well, now there is a company that is working on a power PC notebook and they chose slim PC slim book to provide the chassis for it. Quote from the from the uh, from their site. One of the main points when you're designing a laptop is the relationship between the motherboard and the enclosure. Now, it's not a good idea to design the motherboard if you don't have the chassis. At the same time, the enclosure has to be taken into account with how the motherboard will be made. So we're happy to announce that Slimbook will provide the enclosure that we need for our open hardware power PC notebook. Accubee and Slimbook are collaborating since the beginning of the year, exchanging information about components, disposition and pinouts, thermal dissipation, and so on. This is exciting to me for a couple of reasons. The first is I am always interested in competition regardless of the nature of that competition, right? I am in favor of competition when it comes to video cards. I'm in favor of competition when it comes to operating system. And I'm certainly in favor of competition when it comes to architectures for laptops. Now, it's not lost on me or anybody else to include the Slimbook people that PowerPC is one of the most real competitive processors to x86 that we have seen in a long time. They continue to make headway. There continue to be people that are loyal to that particular architecture and really believe that is the future. And yes, ARM Totally owns mobile top to bottom. They totally own TV and embedded and cheap and fun things, right? You are probably not likely to see a budget version of a power PC anytime soon. They cost thousands and thousands of dollars. This is one of the things that has kept me from getting one. They cost an absurd amount of money. The reason that they cost an absurd amount of money and the reason that they fetch that price is because they do something that other computers don't do they can leverage a tremendous amount of power and a tremendous amount of calculation. And so, when you are building a workstation or when you're purchasing a workstation, these are the kind of things, these are the kind of questions that you start to ask and these are the kind of options that you you start to consider. And so, when you sit down with somebody from the Open Power Project, for example, and chat with them and say, "Hey, tell me what some of these advantages are." And then you find out that, you know what? The vast majority of the code that's run on x86 is actually compatible. Uh, you can run it on PowerPC or there exist ports for them. Um, that's pretty incredible. If the code doesn't require a ton of modification, that's really promising for the future of competition. One of the biggest things that keeps ARM where it is, is the fact that there everybody has to compile. And Linus Torvalds himself has come out and said, hey, it's pretty difficult to compi- compile on an ARM machine. And we need to get these things with a little bit more power. Now, the truth is, ARM machines effectively double in power every year. And so to that end, they become more and more powerful. And that's why they are taking on more and more responsibility. And you see them embedded in more and more things. The downside is because they become more and more powerful all the time, software vendors and service vendors that rely on those ARM processors tend to jack up the requirements uh, of the software. And so what it leaves is you purchase a smart TV and eight months later, all of a sudden Netflix doesn't run. You can't figure out why. And that's why. Because Netflix has continually updated their app to take advantage of the new, more powerful ARM processors, and yours is eight months old. And what I've seen from PowerPC, at least, is that it, the, the development cycle seems to be slower moving, slower pace. And so you can purchase a $2,000 workstation, a $2,500 workstation, and it will still be insanely useful five to seven years from now. And so it becomes a real contender for people that are trying to find a different way to, uh, to, 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 to get their work done. And so the PowerPC Notebook, uh, they have specs published to their GitHub repo. They have the electrical schematics, the whole nine yards, because it is an open laptop. And so I highly suggest you guys check this thing out and take a look at it, see what you think. Of course, we'll have a link in the show notes. I, Regardless of where they go, regardless of how good or bad it is, I'm excited to see competition. And if the price is right, I would love to pick one up. At the moment, I've got my heart set on a, on a, um, on a Pinebook Pro, but... Uh, if this makes some headway, I would love to check this thing out as well. Speaking of laptops, if you're looking for a computer, Dell has launched an all new site to sell Linux specific laptops. Now on this site, which is very well laid out in my opinion, they have the XPS series, the precision mobile 30 series and the precision mobile 40 series. I think this is a really nice way to kind of organize that. I have visited Dell. I've, I've chatted with, uh, with, uh, Martin George, myself, and they are trying to make Linux priority on their machines. Many, if not all of Dell machines, I think there were like two that didn't come with hardware enablement from Dell. The rest of them, they'll work just fine right out of the box with Linux. I've also had an opportunity to chat with some of the people that work at Dell and have worked on and and work in a primarily Windows environment and still are able to load Linux. I think that is a real option. Um, I, we're getting some, uh, some reports that there is, there is obviously a problem with the phone system. And I, I apologize. We're seeing that in the chat room. I wish I had a way to, uh, to troubleshoot that on the fly. Unfortunately, I don't. Um, the only thing I can, uh, I can suggest is just, uh, just try and give us a call back and I'll, I'll try and pick up your call as, as soon as humanly possible. But yeah, Dell has, has launched a site now in typical Dell fashion. And this is one of the things that frustrates me so much. And yes, uh, as JJ four eight eight four in the chat room points out, uh, our interactive mumble room is open, and so you're welcome to join us there in the on air channel. I'd be happy to put you on that way. One of the things that has frustrated me for a long time about Dell is Linux always seems to be an afterthought to them, right? So they start out by saying, "Hey, we really want to, we really want to do Linux. Hey, we're going to publish this thing, and they make this big thing out of it. We have this new site dedicated to Linux developer laptops, so anybody can buy them, right?" And then you click into one of the machines and you try to customize the machine. What you find out is the customization page takes you back to the Windows version. And so it's kind of like this one-off, let's kind of try it, tip our toes in the water and kind of see how it works out. Now, does that mean I'm not grateful or not appreciative of what Dell is doing? No, not that at all. I understand the uphill battle they are fighting. I understand the uphill battle that the people that work on the Linux project are fighting. I understand... The level of Windows laptops that leave the building as opposed to the number of Linux laptops that leave the building. And so I understand where Dell's focus has to be as a hardware manufacturer that at the end of the day, their business is to make money. I get all that. OK, but at the same time, I do believe that you have a market of developers that are willing to fight through. uh, a, Well, for lack of a better term, a crappy website for a time being to try to purchase the laptop they want. I did. Uh, my dad did when he bought his XPS. So my, my wife did when she bought her XPS. So I, I I believe that there is a market for that. I just think Dell would do well to spend some time and try to rectify some of those issues because I think if they do, it would pay off in dividends. I think Dell could very easily become one of the premier retailers for uh, Linux laptops for developer use, right? Right up there with System76. So I, I would love to see them do that. But for now, we'll have the link in the show notes. Again, you can find that at podcast.asknoahshow.com. I would love... Uh, to see a little bit more love go into this, but I think it's a really great start, and I'm glad that there is now a landing page that instead of just the developer XPS project page, it actually looks like a, I won't call it a division of Dell, but it actually is a section of Dell uh, where they actually truly support Linux. KDE has chosen GitLab, Uh, The KDE community, one of the largest free software communities with more than 3,600 contributors, will have access to an even larger range of development and code review features with GitLab's DevOps platform uh, to complement their current tools used by the KDE community. The KDE community will also be able to integrate GitLab's single application for all DevOps lifecycle to their development workflow from planning to development to deployment and monitoring using GitLab. KDE contributors will have access to concurrent DevOps and the ability to manage and secure access stages. GitLab also provides increased visibility and comprehensive governance and accelerates software life cycles. When I first saw this, one of the first thing I thought was, well, that's smart because that's what we did at UltiSpeed. We moved all of our stuff over to GitLab. And every time I turn around, it seems like there's another project that is rebasing their code base on GitLab. And I think that's encouraging because it really speaks to the level of quality of work that GitLab is doing. The other thing it tells me is that people in the open, free and open source world are very, very skeptical of Microsoft and their ability to handle GitHub, right? Overnight, overnight, GitHub has you know just started to tank after they got purchased by Microsoft or they got bought out, and Microsoft hadn't even done anything yet and at least from all appearances thus far, it doesn't look like Microsoft plans to do anything with it, and yet people are still leaving and I think that says a lot about how fast GitLab is growing. I think it says a lot about how great their platform is, and I think it says a lot about how little people trust Microsoft and what can they do to change that and um I think this is an excellent choice for the KDE team. I really do. And I, I'm glad to see that I didn't know that there were that many people that contributed um, to the KDE desktop. And so to every one of the 2,600 of you, I have to say thank you. Um, the Linux Ninja points out in the chat room that GitLab has a lot more to offer and they listen to their community. And boy, if that isn't the truth. I have seen Eric Hendricks in... It, it basically, if there is a Linux community, that guy is there and he's reporting back to GitLab and saying, hey, this is what the people want. And uh, my friend Jason, same story, right? Works for he is an engineer for GitLab. Same thing, right? He spends an enormous amount of time talking with the community, talking with uh, talking with people and trying to ascertain what it is the community expects from a project like GitLab and what they want from that platform and what GitLab can do to provide it. Uh, when, the, when we switched all of our stuff over to GitLab, one of the first things that we noticed right off the bat was the fact that GitLab supported the, our YubiKeys. And so we were able to roll that right into our authentication, and we were able to use the two-factor authentication with YubiKeys. And and, and there's just there's a lot of things that we've been discovering where GitLab has just really gotten it right. And so I'm glad to see that KDE has chosen GitLab. I think they're going to be very happy there, and I think it's going to be good for both GitLab and KDE. Matthew, the project lead for Matrix, did an AMA. Now, there's a lot of good info in this thread, uh, which we'll have linked in the show notes. But a few things, a note that stood out to me that I wanted to point out. First of all, I never really thought about it a lot. But the truth is Matrix sets itself apart because of its decentralized nature, right? A lot of times we talk about Signal. We talk about Telegram. And I trust the encryption algorithms for Signal uh, to no end. I mean, it's an absolutely great messaging system and an even better encryption system, and it's why the encryption system is so good. It's why Facebook implemented the the signal protocol for their secret chats, whatever they're calling it, and as did WhatsApp and a couple of other companies. And WhatsApp, of course, you know, they can't just say we implemented it, so we have a similar algorithm, but basically they implemented the signal protocol the problem with Signal, the problem with Telegram, the problem with basically every other competing messenger, privacy-focused or not, is that they all rely on a central server. It all relies on a central service. And the problem with that is it becomes very difficult to establish autonomy. And if that, anything ever happens to that company, all of a sudden, you're going to run into a world of problems. Now, Chatroom points out Signal is an example of a company that loves Linux, and that is absolutely true. However, it's still... A company that has a even if it's open source end to end, it's still a company that relies primarily on operating a service model. And the nice thing about Matrix is it's specifically designed to be decentralized, and so you can host it yourself, and anybody can participate. And it kind of goes back almost sort of uh, to the to the to, to the reasons that people are so in love with XMMP. Um, it's just a it's just a, a really great general protocol for things. Now, does it have some work? Uh, Uh, Do they have some work to do? Yeah, I would really like to see uh, an official client. I would like to see an official client that supported end-to-end encryption, particularly with video calls, so I could do an encrypted video call end-to-end. I would actually like to really see Matrix do something similar or implement straight up the signal protocol since it's open source. I think all of that would make it for a really exciting project, and so we'll see where the development goes, but uh, if you have a chance, go check out that AMA because I think it'll give you some real insight into what the folks at Matrix are doing. And again, it is yet another example of how people in the open source world continue to focus on open source. So this week, it was my son's ninth birthday. And at our house in the past, our kids have always opened their presents um, at their party in front of all their friends and in front of all of our family. And I'll stop right here and just say that at, at this point in the show, like we've gotten through all the new stuff we've gotten on. Our, our call system isn't working. So f- at, at this point, I, I have to I got to share this story because it's pretty cool and it does involve Linux and it involves a really happy kid at the end. If that's interesting to you, great. If not, we'll see you next week. So his actual birthday present was wrapped up and in our suburban and we were going to take it over to his party later that day. Now, when I was a kid. My birthday presents were always sitting on our kitchen table. So I'd wake up on my birthday. I would come out to the kitchen table and there sitting in my place would be this you know giant birthday present. And it was kind of an exciting thing. There was something magical. Uh, it was almost like being high where you were in this state where everyone was happy around you and you're still waking up. And now you have this cool thing. And even if it wasn't wrapped up, you might not know what this thing was, because you're you're so sleepy and you're groggy and you're trying to figure it out, but it's still really exciting, and it was just a cool experience. And so the night before my son's birthday, I am getting ready for bed, and it's about 3 a.m. I'm tired. I basically exist in a constant state of sleep deprivation. And I look over to my desk in my bedroom where sitting on the corner is perched my X two seventy ThinkPad, which has been sitting in the corner since the day I got my X1. Then my eyes kind of dart over to my X1 which I actually lost last week for a day because I haven't really been using it since I got my Sailfish OS phone. Um, But I I look over at my X1, and I start to think to myself, self, what am I ever going to do with the X270? Because I'm now two devices removed from the device I actually use. I'm doing my show notes, and I'm doing my day-to-day stuff on my Sailfish OS phone. And I'm not really using the X1, much less using the X270. What am I going to do with it? Well, I got a few choices. I could sell it. It's probably worth a decent amount of money. I could turn it into a work computer. It is, after all, the last computer I bought that had a physical Ethernet jack, which is fantastic. I could turn it into a project computer, so I could do reviews and stuff for Ask Noah. That would be cool. Or I could give it to my nine-year-old, who would lose his mind over a computer, especially one with uh, Type-C charging. Despite his best efforts... To take care of his X240, his sisters have done a pretty remarkable job of pulling off keys and knocking it down and damaging the power ports and all the things that you would expect to happen with three kids in charge of a laptop under the age of 10, right? I decide I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to give him this X270. There's, There's one big problem, though. There's one main hurdle standing between me and the perfect birthday present, the perfect birthday surprise for my son's ninth birthday, and that is... I'm absolutely under no circumstances giving my nine-year-old a machine with all of my data on it. My data has to get pulled off. And I don't have the time at three in the morning to back up and scrub the machine, right? It's not that I don't trust Lux. I would perfectly trust it, but there's still stuff on there I need to get off. And since I don't really believe in stuff being on the cloud, there's a lot of stuff that only exists on that computer. Well, here's problem number two. That computer has an NVMe drive in it. Now, I own an IT company, so the thought dawns on me that we do ha- tend to stock a lot of computer parts, but you know what? The one thing we don't have, we don't have mv drives, and I've got a lot of junk at my house, but you know what? The one thing I don't have laying around, I don't have many mv drives, because one, they don't go bad terribly often, and two, they're so new that most people haven't come up for replacing them. I start digging around box after box to see what I can find, right, because there was one time in my entire career that I can remember upgrading an mv e drive. Now, I have no idea what happened to the original drive. I just know that it went somewhere. And so hopefully it's in a box of parts. And I come across a box where I know at one time that drive had been, and I start digging and digging and digging. And about two hours into this process, I find this mv e drive. So now we're at like 5 in the morning, right? I find it. I take it over to my workbench. I pull the back off. I swap the drive. I load Kubuntu on it. I put a literally a bow on it and I set it on the kitchen table. And as you can imagine, his eyes lit up like saucers when he saw, saw it. In fact, for the first like five minutes, he didn't actually believe that I was giving it to him, that it was his. Um, but and then he got his, you know, quote unquote, real birthday present later that day when he went to his party and stuff like that. But he was a happy kid. Point of that story is a couple of things. So first of all, uh, back up your data. Don't store stuff on older computers. And give your kids uh, things with Linux on it because it inspires them to do more things. The very first thing my son told me when he came home and what made me think to bring it up on the show tonight. He told me that he was using his Chromebook at school and he was using his iPad and he had used one of their Macs. And he said the thing that he noticed after he got his new X270 was how much faster That computer was than anything else he had access to and how he wished he could take his laptop to school because all of the other computers were so terrible. Either the interface was horrible. He couldn't figure something out or they were just, you know, just slow. And it just it it got me to thinking this is really something that matters to kids. If you can instill positive uh, uh, technology Early on, if you can demonstrate to them that here is a platform that will work for you and do the things that you want it to do and it's not going to crash and you can experiment and play around and have fun and explore and learn about the technology, that's perfectly okay. Nothing bad is going to happen when you set up those lessons for kids. And he is not afraid of anything. You know, he's not afraid to move files around. He's not afraid to start things up. He's not afraid to try out new software because it always works for him. And so to watch that process unfold and then watch him to go into the public education system where he gets a quote unquote normal computer and has a horrendous experience just tells me I'm doing something right. I am launching a new project uh, this week that I'm excited to share with you. I was hired at Leighton Broadcasting to learn the art of storytelling and to become a better broadcaster. It's absolutely fantastic working at this place because I walk out of my desk and sitting less than 100 feet from me are people with over 20 years of broadcasting experience, and... That has taught me so much, and we I had a conversation with our operations uh, manager, and he said, we'd really like to expand latent broadcasting into the podcasting field, and that's something that I think you would be really well-suited for. So could we pay you to launch a show that will captivate, inspire people through storytelling, and is that something we could pay you to do? And I said, huh, yes. So it's going to start out monthly. It's called The School of Hard Knocks. It's a highly produced, very refined The best audio quality that money can buy. Here's a short snippet. Life is full of small lessons if you are willing to stop and pay attention to them. Everyone has a story. And the points where our stories intersect not only define us, those are the moments where we find out who we really are and if we're willing to grow. I'm Noah Chalayan, and I invite you to join me in a monthly podcast where we'll explore life together, one story at a time, on The School of Hard Knocks.
0: get to my wife's 40th birthday party. We have a babysitter for Maggie and we're going out. So we go out and I literally, and I kid you not, get hammered in about 15 minutes. If I wasn't drinking beer, I would like to drink rum. Sometimes I would drink Bacardi. And so that particular night, I started by drinking a couple of big glasses of Bacardi. And I was drinking and my wife, which was our kind of the way we did things, when she saw me do that... She would throttle down. She would stop drinking because she was the adult. She realized somebody had to drive. We had a child. We got bills. We got, you know, got a life. So I did my thing. Got hammered. Finished the night by getting coup-rushed. Stayed out till two, three, four in the morning. She maybe had one more beer the whole night. Now, remember, and I like to remember people often, that it was her birthday party. We got uh, got home. Went to bed. Uneventful. Not a big fight. Um, Woke up the next day was the typical lethargical, lethargic rather start to everything. I'm kind of getting my wits about me. She, of course, gets up before me, blah, blah, blah. I walk out to the kitchen, and she's sitting there, and I go ahead and make some very unhealthy type breakfast for myself because, you know, that grease, Noah. You got to have yourself some grease. So I'm, I'm going through that whole thing. I eat breakfast. Maggie had something to do, so somebody came to pick up Maggie, so it was just my wife and I. We're sitting there, and she looks at me, and she says... You know, I love you more than anything, but she said, I will not go through that again. So she said, here's your choices. You can either take the steps to fix your addiction, or she said, I will be taking Maggie and I will be leaving. The choice is yours. With that, she handed me a book and said, I want you to read this. If you love me at all, you'll read it. And, uh, you know, let me know what your decision is.
1: So that's my uh, that's my boss and operations manager, Derek Thomas. If you want to find out what the ending of that story is, download the first episode of The School of Hard Knocks. You can find it at the schoolofhardknocks.show. That's the schoolofhardknocks.show. Of course, I'll have a link in the show notes. Now, anyone that's listened to this show for any amount of time knows I don't do, quote unquote, adult content. Um, so that's not what this is going to be for the most part is family friendly. That said. This is a show primarily designed for adults, so there's nothing in it for kids specifically. And the topics from time to time are going to dip into somewhat of a mature subject matter. The overall message is always going to be positive and inspirational, but I just want to give that disclaimer. So I invite you all to check it out. First episode launching tomorrow. We'll have it ready for you before your drive to work. We're covering alcohol and addiction. It's the School of Hard Knocks at schoolhardknocks.show. Check it out.